Good morning. Good to see everybody today. How many of you enjoyed the cool weather this morning that we woke up to? Man, it's about time, isn't it? Anybody show up an hour earlier than you planned on this morning? Everybody got their clock set good? Good. You wouldn't admit it if you did, right? I'm meant to be here that early. Let's take our Bibles and open up to Leviticus chapter 16 this morning. Two weeks ago, we began looking at this whole issue of shame, which is an issue that everyone struggles with, at least at some level, because it is part of the curse of sin that affects us all. And the brokenness of this world and broken people that we encounter tend to do a pretty good job of magnifying it even more. Last week, we talked about how shame is what drives people to chase after the rabbit of love. It motivates us to do whatever it takes and pay whatever costs in order to gain the love, affirmation, and acceptance that we so desperately crave. Shame is one of Satan's most effective tools that he uses to keep us as far away from God as possible. He shames and condemns, convincing us that there is some flaw in us that makes us unworthy to be loved. This morning we're going to look a little more at what shame does and I'm sure that many of you are going to be able to relate to a lot of this and hopefully at the same time find lots of healing in it. Last week we identified shame in the story of the prodigal son. Today we're going to look at an Old Testament text, Leviticus chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 5. So recognizing that we are hearing the actual words of the creator of the universe Let's all stand as we receive them this morning. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Now skip down to verse 20. When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land. And he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you do desire to speak to us this morning. And God, I pray that we would hear you clearly. And Lord, I recognize the fact that, Lord, in in dealing with this issue, God, we are treading on enemy territory. Lord, this is ground that you are exposing that he has been able to operate from and wreaking havoc in the lives of many people And so I know that all the the forces of hell itself, the spiritual darkness, God, is going to do everything it can to distract and keep us from being able to see this and from being able to see you for who you are. And I'm asking you right now in the most powerful and precious name of Jesus that you would squash his efforts at coming against what you desire. God, how dare him try to stop what you want to do. So, God, I pray that you would remind him of his place. 
And that you would just let him know what a grave mistake it would be to come against your will. So, Lord, we submit ourselves to you and ask you to speak, God, and change us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What we just read were the instructions to the Israelites about the mysterious Day of Atonement. Where two goats were taken, one for the sin offering and the other one to be the scapegoat. The one for the sin offering was slaughtered. And in the the part that we skipped there in chapter 16, it's just talking about how uh, the goat for the sin offering would be slaughtered on the altar. And then the high priest, which was Aaron at this point, would take the blood of that goat and go into the Holy of Holies, which is where the very manifest presence of God resided, and he would sprinkle that goat around in there. And then he would come outside and sprinkle more of the blood on the altar and around in front of the people, and that was done so that the sins of the people would be paid for. Atonement means to pay for an offense. And for a season, the sin debt of the people would be paid in full. For one more day, for one more season, God would not release his wrath against the people for their rebellion. Now we now know that that goat was a foreshadow of Jesus' blood that would be shed for us to pay for our sin. But instead of our sin being paid for just a season, Jesus' blood would be the final payment for all time for all sin. And so the first goat was sacrificed in order to fulfill God's demand for justice. Because God is holy, the violation of his law had to be paid for. But instead of it being paid by the blood of the people, which is what should have been done, He graciously allowed it to be paid by a substitute, which at this time was the blood of a goat. But one goat wasn't enough. Why is that? Because even though the debt was paid, the memory of their failure was still there. The debt was gone with the first goat, but the shame still lingered. As Christians, we all understand that we are forgiven. We have received Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. But I've come to realize that not many Christians have received him as the bearer of their shame. And this is exactly why why so many people will tell me, say, Jason, I, I know that God has forgiven me for what I've done, but I just can't seem to forgive myself. It's because that shame over what you have done is still, still there. You're feeling shameful about that. But it actually is not a forgiveness issue at all. It's completely a shame issue. And many Christians today are unable to live the abundant life that Jesus said that he came to give because so many of us are living and operating and responding to that wound on our heart that shame causes I'm telling you right now, God not only wants to forgive your sin, He also wants to heal your heart. That wound that shame causes is very painful. And one of the main ways that we try to rid ourselves of the pain is by creating scapegoats. There are scapegoats on the playground. 
Ha ha, look at Johnny. He throws like a girl. There are scapegoats in marriages. Someone to shame. You're too fat. You're too dumb. It's always your fault. One spouse loses all the arguments and over time feels lower and lower until finally she will take just about anything, even a fist. If our sins are paid for by the first goat but our shame is unhealed, we'll always be looking for another goat. That's why wounded people wound people. That's why shameful people shame people. That's why we need Jesus not only to save us, but to heal us. Let's look closer here at the parallels between the scapegoat in the Old Testament and scapegoats today. Verse 8 again, it says that Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. No one knew which goat was going to be slaughtered and which one was going to be the scapegoat. And so lost lots were cast, which is the modern-day equivalent, essentially, of flipping a coin. There was nothing inherent about either goat that would qualify either one for any of those roles. It was basically decided by random chance. Some of you in here today have been the scapegoat of someone else. And you've been racked with the thought that there has to be something wrong with you to cause that to happen. There's got to be something about you that would cause somebody to treat you that way. Why are you the scapegoat? Because you're there. It's nothing more than the casting of lots. But Satan has convinced you that there's got to be something wrong with you. That you can't do anything about. But the truth is the only reason that you've been made the scapegoat is because you're there. You were the closest target. And so someone decided you would be it and you received it. Verse 21. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sin. We don't lay ceremonial hands on the head of scapegoats, but we do have ways of making the transfer of shame. Name-calling. You're a loser. Gossip. Did you see what she was wearing today? Mockery. Hey, pizza face. Hey, four eyes. Christians have even found ways of disguising the transfer of shame in religious terminology. You know, we need to pray for so-and-so. I mean, have you heard about the affair? In other words, I'm ashamed of my own marriage, but at least I didn't have an affair. Transfer the shame. Verse 22. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. The scapegoat is sent to a solitary place because those who lay hands on scapegoats don't want to see the animal anymore that bears their shame. The purpose of the Day of Atonement was to shift 
the shame and get rid of it. If the goat were to return back to the people, then it would just display their shame to them all over again. So it was sent somewhere where it wouldn't be able to return. If you're following along in your notes, here's the first point. We can't stand the sight of our own shame, even if we've transferred it to a scapegoat. You ever notice how ironic it is that some people will detest, put down, and criticize someone else for the very thing that they display themselves? You know, whatever bothers you the most about someone else, a lot of times is what bothers you the most about you. It's because we can't stand to see our own shame. Banishing shame to the wilderness happens in the way a spouse will close communication and withdraw emotionally. It happens in the words, get out of my face. I can't stand the sight of you. That's shame admitting that it can't stand looking in the mirror. If I project my shame onto you, then the sight of you is offensive to me. and I don't want to see you. Remember last week we talked about the difference between shame and conviction. We said that conviction always brings us closer to the Father while shame moves us further away from the Father. I'm sure many of you have felt that isolation and rejection from someone else. And if you are one who can painfully relate to that, I'm going to tell you something that is very important for you to hear. And I've included it as the next point in your notes so that you can keep it with you as a reminder. And that is that the best thing a scapegoat can do is to refuse isolation. Coming into relationship with godly people can bring miraculous change and healing. At my house, we've raised dairy goats for the last six or seven years, and observing the way that goats behave made me understand why a goat was the animal that was chosen in this particular instance. For one thing, goats are highly social animals. They don't like being alone. They need at least one other goat with them in order to keep them company and make them happy. They are also creatures of routine. Goats are happier and a lot more at ease and content and well-mannered if they are fed, milked, or worked with in any way the same time every day, making it a routine. Um, The reason for that is because it provides them this great sense of security because goats are strictly a prey animal. They don't have any good natural defenses. And so when there's routine going on, it just lets them know that everything's okay and gives them this sense of security. But change the routine and it makes them very nervous and uneasy. Goats are also very hard-headed. You don't, a goat doesn't follow a shepherd. They're going to do their own thing. That's why this was a scapegoat and not a scape sheep. A sheep would have followed that handler right back to the village. But take a goat somewhere and let it find something to eat and walk away, and it will not follow you back if it doesn't want to. It's going to do its own thing. And so the scapegoat here would be taken out to the wilderness alone 
out of its normal routine. And when a goat is stressed, it gets very vocal. And it bleats and baws real loudly, starts fussing. And so there it would be all alone, vulnerable, with no defenses, crying out for every predator within earshot to hear it. A goat wouldn't last one night. Any animal, any other animal, might stand a chance of making it back to the village, but a lonely goat out in the wilderness was doomed to die and never come back. If you struggle with shame, it is vitally important for you not to remain isolated. You know, many people who don't like to be around others and avoid intimacy will usually say, well, that's just their personality. But the truth is, more than likely, it's because they're full of shame. God didn't create us to be isolated. He wired us for relationship. And so to remain isolated is the worst thing to do because just like the goat, that is where you are the most vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. And that is his main strategy, to get you isolated where he can destroy you. I mean, think about it. Do you know what the most common and universally recognized symbol for Satanism is? That picture up there. It's a goat head. I don't believe that's just a coincidence. It's because shame is right at the top of the list of Satan's most powerful tool that he uses to destroy people and keep them from the good things of God. And that's why we feel so strong as a leadership of this church to make community and relationships such a point of emphasis and are always encouraging you to get involved in smaller groups of people, whether it be Sunday school or Wednesday night class or, or getting involved in our life groups that meet outside of church. And we don't do that because we want to be able to brag about how many people came to these other programs. It's because we understand how important relationships are to the life of a Christian and how important they are to God. Because even in a large group setting like this, it is easy to remain isolated. I mean, anybody can hide in a large group. And so my encouragement to you today is don't stay in the wilderness. Come out from there. Turn over to Mark chapter 1 for a minute. I'm going to show you something so neat here. Mark, in Mark's account of the gospel, he begins Jesus' story, not with his birth, but with um, the beginning of his ministry. And so he starts it off when Jesus was 33 years old. And I want us to look at this and play, pay close attention to exactly how Jesus' ministry did start. Mark 1, starting in verse 9. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son. In you, I am well pleased. Last week, we talked about how shame assumes that love is earned. 
Many people chase the rabbit of God's love that religion has dangled out in front of them, convincing them that there is something that they've got to do in order to earn it. But then we looked at how that is not the way that God operates. We saw in Genesis 1 that God first blessed Adam and Eve and then told them what he wanted them to do. He didn't tell them what to do and then make his blessing hinge on how well they did it, on how good they behaved. And then we saw in Genesis 6 that Noah didn't find favor with God because he was righteous. Noah was righteous because he had God's favor. And then I told you to write something down that it's important to keep in mind, and that is that an orphan will do in order to get, but a son will do because he knows what he has. She knows what she has. This account right here with Jesus' baptism is a perfect illustration of that. Jesus hadn't done anything yet as far as accomplishing what the Father sent him to do. He was just about to begin that. And so in order for him to be successful, the Father gave him what he needed the most in order for him to achieve everything. And instead of filling his mind with instruction... He filled his heart with affirmation, and he spoke the words that every son longs to hear from the Father. He reminded him of who he was. He said, you are my son. And then he told him he was proud of him. In you, I am well pleased. And then he didn't do this often private which might make it seem like he was embarrassed for anyone else to hear. It was a voice that everyone around heard. He did it right out there in public, which makes it even more meaningful. Dads, let your kids know that you're proud of them. But here's the key. Not because of what they do, but because of who they are. Just for the simple fact that they belong to you. If you only tell them that just the times when they achieve something or do something good, then that sends the message that they earned your favor. Don't let that happen. And do it in front of others every now and then, too, if you really want to see them turn inside out. Jesus executed his mission to perfection. He did everything that the Father sent him to do. He didn't fail at one detail. But he didn't do it in order to gain his father's favor. He did it because he knew that he had it. That's what motivated him. I really believe that the reason so many Christians feel like this Christian life is such a struggle and the reason why they don't feel like they are living this abundant life is because of the next point in the notes. Most people are trying to live for approval rather than living from approval. Living for, not because of. God wants us to live because He loves us, not so that He will love us. Being in Christ means that you have all the approval of God that you're ever going to get. Not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus has already done. For you. Now, watch this. What is the first thing that Jesus does after receiving the approval of the Father? 
Verse 12 and 13. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. The very first place that Jesus goes is the very same place that the scapegoat was sent to. You think that's a coincidence? Not at all. But instead of being sent to the wilderness with shame, he was sent out there with the remedy for shame. His strong identity in the Father and the Father's approval. We having problems again? Do I need to switch microphones? I believe this account right here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry is representative of Jesus going and redeeming all the human scapegoats that have ever been relegated to the wilderness. Jesus went into the wilderness full of the Father's love. And I believe this morning he's coming into some of your wilderness with the same thing. And if you're in Christ, God is declaring over you this morning, you are my beloved child. In you, I am well pleased. You might say, why? What did I do? You didn't do anything. That's the thing. It's not because of what you do. It's because of who he has made you in Christ. Because you know, knowing who you are affects everything that you do in life. Our actions always line up with what we believe about ourselves, about who we are. And so that's why it's so important to keep reminding ourselves and each other of who we are in Christ. Shame tries to convince us that we're something other than what we really are. Anybody ever seen the movie Blood Diamond? It's been a few years. You may remember it. There's a scene in that movie that illustrates this powerful truth. Leonardo DiCaprio's character has agreed to help this African man rescue his son who has been kidnapped by rebels and brainwashed. And in return, the father would give him a large diamond that he had found and and buried somewhere. This man's young son was kidnapped by this rebel group and he was forced to do some absolutely horrific things which is how they try to maintain control and brainwash these kids to get them to do whatever they want to. And so his son has been brainwashed to believe that his dad is the enemy and that he needs to be killed. Watch what happens.
The father knew that all he had to do was remind his boy who he was. Because when you know who you are, everything changes. That's exactly what God wants to do with us. One more point I want to bring out before we close this. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed to the Father, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. He saw the cup of suffering that the Father would have him drink, like the sourest gall It would defile him like the vilest poison. It was sure to kill him. In that cup of suffering was not only the collective guilt of the world, but also its shame. Last point in your notes. Jesus was both a sacrifice for your sin and the scapegoat for your shame. In that cup was both The guilt of the rapist and the shame of the raped. The guilt of the molester and the shame of the molested. The guilt of the abuser and the shame of the abused. The guilt of the accuser and the shame of the accused. In that cup would be the isolation and loneliness of every scapegoat that has ever wandered in the demonic wilderness. He would become the first goat, slaughtered to pay our debt, and he would become the second goat, bearing all of our shame. If you have taken that step of trusting Jesus for your sin, you know that it's just it's a matter of faith, just believing that it is so. Letting him bear your shame is a matter of faith as well. All the shame and loneliness and rejection that you've been weighed down by, you just come to him and, and give it over to him and trust him that he will take it so that you don't have to bear it any longer. Come to him honestly. Admitting your shame and releasing it to him in faith. And then you will know him not only as your forgiver, but also your healer. And your life will absolutely change. Let's pray. God, I know that there are so many in here that have believed something other of who they are in you. Lord, I know there are those in here that have been living, living a life that they know has not been right. And God, I pray that right now they will hear you reminding them and saying, this is not who you are. You are my son. You are my daughter. And I love you.
God, I pray for those that have been so full of shame, weighed down for so long. God, that this day would be a defining moment in their life where you just begin to to peel back all those walls that they have built up for protection, staying isolated from you and from others. And that, God, you would remove that shame just enough for them to come to you, fall into your arms, and to feel the love and acceptance and favor that they've been trying so hard to earn. Lord, open our eyes to see the true heart of the Father. Lord, change us for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I believe the Lord is here and he is wanting to do something. Many of you this morning. And again, I know that this had to have hit a nerve.